Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Worship team, thank you all so much. Rick, um, all you guys, thank you all for getting here early on Sundays and practicing and then being able to lead us in worship. So, so grateful for you guys. Um, it's wonderful. We have a, a, a visiting guest, Allison Barnhill. I'm going to call you out um, from Reclaimed, a strategic ministry partner um, with some of our missionaries in Lesotho that we have partnership with. So welcome back. It's great to have you guys. Her husband, Brett, is actually over in Lesotho right now. We'll be there for the next three weeks um, doing work and all those kind of things. So very thankful for you guys. And, uh, and we'll continue to have those mission trips on the horizon. Uh, my hope is that as, as things stabilize with COVID, uh, that we'll be able to begin doing short-term mission trips in the very near future. And uh, Noah and I are very excited about that. Noah is our missions pastor uh, to be able to help, you know, start gearing up for those sort of things in the future. So thank you for being a church that not only wants to send people, uh, but also wants to go and to be on short-term mission trips like that. Well, this morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a little bit longer passage, but this is our last week in this sermon series that I've entitled Generosity Is. And we've just been trying to define what is generosity generosity because our world, our culture, the United States has a, a definition of what generosity is, but we wanted to know what God, how, how God speaks to this thing of generosity and how God's Word defines generosity. And so we've looked at several truths from God's Word in chapter 8, and I think it's important to acknowledge that um, if this is your first week with us, I would encourage you to go back on our website and to maybe consider the content of those last three sermons, uh, or just take time in, in your personal time to read chapter 8 because because so many times, this is what, what happens, especially in a lot of like um, different, you know, churches that really maybe gravitate to talking more about money and about trying to get people to give more and all those things, is they go to chapter 9. Uh, chapter 9 has the verses that are often used in what is called the prosperity gospel movement of, of, of this idea that God wants us all to be healthy and wealthy, and, uh, and, that, and they use passages from here. But so that's why it's so important for us as a church family to look at not only at chapter 9, but to have also looked at chapter 8, um, and really to look at all of 2 Corinthians and read 1 Corinthians while you're at it. I mean, like to really see what is the essence of what Paul is saying. What's the big message that's going on? Um, it was Paul just a televangelist, you know, somebody that was just always trying to get more and more money out of people. And the reality is when we read these letters, we see that his focus was not on money. Um, that, that wasn't the essence of his ministry. But he knew that it was a part of our human experience, that, that God entrusts to us wealth. He puts money in our hands, in our pockets, and then that is an issue of lordship. That, that what we do with our money is an issue of lordship. And so this morning, that's the final truth that I want us to walk away with from God's word, is generosity is all about lordship. Generosity is all about lordship. That's what it comes down to, is if Jesus is Lord, then your life is going to be a generous life. But if Jesus is not Lord, then there may be these false fruit. We talked about the Hobby Lobby edition of fruit. You know, It looks real on the outside, but it's hollow on the inside. Your life may look generous if Jesus is not Lord, but it is not the type of generosity that really springs up out of a saved heart a heart that has been made new and just generosity bubbles up from it because you've experienced the generous love of God in Jesus Christ. 
And so this morning, I want us to walk through this. Now, how many of you have ever had the experience where, you know, a teacher maybe has come up to you if you have children and said, you know, I don't even have to tell you about little Billy and how good he's doing in class. But then they go on to tell you how great little Billy's doing in class and all the things he's doing. And maybe even tuck in there in that conversation, you know, like, but, but little Billy could do a little better job on this, you know, like and kind of uh, tuck it in there. That's kind of what Paul does here. He says right here in verse one, I don't even have to write this section. In other words, you know, these next few words, I, I don't even need to take the time, but, but I'm going to take the time uh, to reemphasize to you a few more things about this. But really what he's illustrating here in chapter nine is built on of what he said in chapter eight, really kind of instructing them about generosity. Now he says, guys, I just want you to see what a generous life looks like. I just want to tell you about the effect of when you are living as a generous Christian, what life is going to be like for you. And he wants them to experience. So with that in mind, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We honor the Lord as we turn to his word. And so hear God speak to you today from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it is unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your eagerness, and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you in this matter would not prove empty, and so that you would be ready, just as I said. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, would be put to shame in that situation. Therefore, I considered it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you, ahead to you, and arrange in advance the generous gift you promised, so that it will be ready as a gift and not as an extortion. The point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you, so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the proof Provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. And as they pray on your behalf, they will have deep affection for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Father, thank you for the indescribable gift of Christ. Thank you for the gift of the indescribable life that you have given us in Christ. May we understand this better. May we live this better as a result of your word having its effect on us this morning. All of this we ask that you would do in the power 
and the goodness of your Holy Spirit so that you receive all the glory for what happens in our lives in obedience to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Chapter 9 makes clear the effect of generosity, the effect of generosity. And so what I want us to do is to walk through and see five movements in this passage and how they unfold communicating about the effects of generosity within the life of a believer. Number one, we see it in verses one through five, and it's this, practicing generosity prevents shame. Practicing generosity prevents shame. The way that he couches this is he says that there's already been an existing relationship with the church at Corinth. And he's, they've already promised him, he says in verse 5, you know, to arrange the, in advance the generous gift you promised. So, so there's already been this promise made, we're with you, Paul. Paul, we've heard about the plight of the believers in Jerusalem. We want to help. Um, we want to be the kind of believers that when there are needs among the brothers and sisters in Christ, that we rise up to meet them. Now, I'll be honest with you, within the Southern Baptist Convention, we as a Great Commission Baptist Church, that's really what we all say. There's not a single one of us in this room, I would venture to say, that if I told you of great need, if I told you of brothers and sisters that are going through flooding or tornadoes or fires or earthquakes or hurricanes or things like that, you're going to say, I I don't really care. You know, I don't really care about those believers. Chances are, if we did a survey this morning, you would say, I'm concerned for our brothers and sisters in those areas, just as we were so grateful for the concern shown to us from our brothers and sisters in North Carolina that came and stayed in our facility, that served in our community, fed tens of thousands of meals, all of those things. We have the same heart. But additionally, if I left the U.S. and began to tell you of the suffering in different nations and among our brothers and sisters, Like, for example, in the country of Lesotho, when they faced an extreme famine several years ago, how Baptists rose up to the moment and gave so that half a million dollars of food could be provided through the missionaries to the pastors of villages to take care of our brothers and sisters in other places. That's the heart of Southern Baptist. But that cannot just remain the heart of Southern Baptist. You see, that was Paul's concern. He says, your heart was expressed, but but now is the time to act. Now is the time to give to the thing where your heart is. And so, I mean, this is kind of what James gets at. You know, that faith without works is dead. He's driving at something here. He's saying, it's wonderful. Your hearts are in the right place. And I would say to us today, our hearts are in the right place. We want to help. We want to be concerned with urgent physical needs and spiritual needs in our region, in the United States, and all around the world. But it is not enough for our heart to be in the right place. Paul pushes them in a loving way toward a heart that takes action. A heart that is inextricably bound to what the hand does and where the feet go. Because that's a faith that counts. The result of this is that when the believers come, he even notes that when the Macedonians come, those that are going through difficulty and actually have been inspired by the heart of the the church in Corinth, not to mention if he brought any believers from Jerusalem 
to come with him to visit this church in Corinth, that if they showed up and they said, oh, our hearts were with you, but we actually don't have anything. We, we, we said we wanted to do this, but we, you know, we got busy. We, we forgot. I'm so sorry. I mean, there's maybe no more shameful moment than when you've said something, you've promised something to someone, and then they come to you and they say, did, did, you, do, did you do what you promised? And then they have to say, I forgot. I'm so sorry. I, I just forgot. Paul is being sure that they don't forget, that they follow through on exactly what they said. And we need that reminder today. You see, this is the importance of what Paul is doing. It's what we need to practice, a regular giving. You know, he gives instruction back in 1 Corinthians about when they gather together that they would set aside on the first day of the week a certain amount. In fact, he says it very clearly, what each man has decided in his heart. You know, he's not, he's not telling them an exact amount they have to give, a flat dollar amount or a specific percentage of their income. He just says, let each one determine in their heart what they ought to set aside. But he's pushing them toward a regular giving so that when he shows up and when this group shows up, it won't be this moment of like, oh, uh, Oh man, I, I, you know, I don't have any cash. Is there an ATM machine here? You know, like, you know, what can I do? I mean, have you ever been in that moment? I mean, I've been to, to, to churches or services where I had no idea there was going to be a special offering taken. And I'm like a lot of millennials, um, even though I'm not a millennial, I'm a little bit older, but don't tell anyone. Um, I, I don't carry cash. It's just not something that, that, that my generation does too much. You know, we, we kind of tend toward plastic. And so like a typical millennial, I was like, I don't have any cash, you know, or I have a dollar, you know, literally $1 bill. And so, you know, you're just embarrassed. You're like, oh man, I look like I don't care at all. Um, but, but that's all I have to give. Paul's trying to avoid that by just saying, do it regularly, church. Just give regularly so that when that moment of need comes, you'll be ready to meet it. As a convention of churches, we give. And as a church, we give. We're ready right now. I want you to understand this about your own finances because I realize there's varying degrees of awareness. Right now, we have a benevolence fund as a church that has money set aside in it so that when urgent needs are made apparent to us, we're able in that moment to begin to take action without having to come back to you on a Sunday and say, hey, there's a specific need. We, we need to do a special offering. Through your regular giving, it is helping position the church in order to meet urgent needs within our own community. Additionally, when we give to the cooperative program, we are putting money aside, if you will, so that in moments like when Hurricane Ida hit New Orleans, Louisiana Baptists could immediately spring into action to begin to supply some, some resources to help pastors and to help churches that was already given. A special offering wasn't needed. Those things were already in place. And so I want you to see some of the practical outworkings of what was written 2,000 years ago, even in the life of your own church. Practicing generosity prevents shame. It leaves us prepared so that we can pair our hearts with our action of giving to those urgent physical and spiritual needs. Second, we see as we read down through verses 6 and 7, that practicing generosity means you get to participate in the harvest. Practicing generosity means you get to participate in the harvest. Notice the way that Paul says it. The point is this. 
The person who spares, who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. That Paul is using an application from a farming metaphor to communicate about this idea of sowing into the ministry. How many of you are familiar with that, that phrase, you know, sowing into the ministry? I don't know many farmers in our group in this room right now, um, but maybe that's a familiar phrase. And many pastors will encourage people to sow into the ministry, and it's very biblical terminology. But unfortunately, even the, the Bible can be used and manipulated, you know, like kind of twisted to accomplish other means to where the idea is if you will sow ten dollars into the ministry god promises you a hundred if you'll sow a hundred dollars into the ministry then he promises you tenfold a thousand and so there becomes this sort of transaction that happens between us and god that god i'll give you if you'll give me and it's always god i'll give you one but i expect ten from you and then when that transaction doesn't materialize, it causes many in churches, both within, you know, Baptist life and beyond, to walk away from the faith saying, man, that did not work. I, I put in my money. I, I gave the money I needed for rent, for groceries, I, you know, or whatever. I put it in the plate because the guy said that I was going to get tenfold. And that doesn't happen. But notice, Notice the principle. This is almost proverbial. In fact, we see almost this exact language in the Proverbs. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Farmers would have understood that. One of the most generous farmers that I know is a man named Mr. Jimmy Hoppy of Hoppy Farms over in the Lake Charles area. Mr. Jimmy is a rice farmer. He, he grows the finest jasmine rice that there is. But Mr. Jimmy was really gracious to our family and allowed us to come out and to understand a little bit more about where rice comes from and how it's grown and all these things. And what I began to understand from Mr. Jimmy is that at the rice farm that he owns there outside of Lake Charles, when they sow seed of of, of rice to, to germinate in the ground and then to grow and produce more, more crops. They don't go through with one little grain of rice, you know, one little seed and dig a hole and plant it and then dig a hole and plant it. They're not, they're not, you know, being conservative with what they're scattering. Instead, they put it in an airplane and then they fly across the field just scattering seed as far as they can, knowing that some of it's going to fall on hard paths some of it's going to fall on the road and get run over by trucks. Some of it's going to end up over in the bushes and in the trees, and it's not going to be able to grow. But a lot of it is going to land exactly where they know it's going to land, and it is going to produce a lot more than what was sown. So that Mr. Jimmy Hoppy, on a regular basis, would bring the Gilbert family, as well as others, a 25-pound bag of jasmine rice. Now, did we exact that from him? Did, did we have to say, Jimmy, if you love the Lord, well, then certainly you'll care about his servant. Nope, we never had to do that because Mr. Jimmy demonstrated the principle of the harvest. He was a man who sowed generously and reaped generously so that he might have something to share with others. And it delighted his heart to learn that how much my kids love jasmine rice and to bring those big old bags to take care of families in the church 
And we even made little bags to give to families when we would go visit them who had visited the church. That's the portrait that I have when I look at this. A man who understood that you sow generously, you reap generously to then be a blessing to others. And that's exactly what Paul is communicating here. He wants the believer to understand that sowing generously means you get to participate in the harvest. Practicing generosity means you get to participate in the harvest. You get to be part of the joy of seeing needs met, of blessing families, of helping people not only in our local community, but all around the world. You get to be part of seeing how God provides for people in a moment of their most critical and vulnerable need. And all the glory and all the praises we'll see in a moment goes to God. And you get to experience the joy of seeing God meet needs. But there's also the warning, right? The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Let that communicate to you. Let the abundance of a 25 pound of rice be in your mind as you think about the heart of this passage. The person who sows generously will also reap generously. Number three, we see practicing generosity does not mean you will always get what you want or even what you thought you needed. Practicing generosity does not mean you will always get what you want or even what you thought you needed. Look at verses 8 through 10. And God is able. Now this is an important word for us to stop and pause on for a moment. Because Paul precisely chooses this word. It's not a very common word. In fact, it's only found three times in the New Testament that Paul uses. That he's able. That means he's capable. God can But that doesn't always mean that God will. That's an important distinction. God is able, God is capable, God can make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Now this is where we have to be careful students of the word because it says very precisely, God is able. But does that mean that a brother or sister who is being persecuted for their faith, who right now is in prison and not being fed and is literally starving to death, who needs food desperately in order to survive, does that mean that they have somehow failed in their faith to God? I don't think any of us would say that. But if they latched into the prosperity gospel that God always gives you what you need, you, you, you will never go without anything that you need, anything that you want. And we define that as three square meals a day, roof over my head, freedoms awarded to me by the Bill of Rights. I mean, all of these things that we talk about and we say, well, we need these things. We need these things. If you latch into that idea of an understanding of this passage that God will always meet your needs, then on that first time, that you're without a roof over your head. That first time that you you do miss a meal because you can't afford the next meal, then you say, why has God failed me? Why, Why has God not been faithful to his promises? Why is God not true to his word? When that is not what his word says. It doesn't promise that. Instead, What we see as we continue to read through this passage, it says, As it is written, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for the food is also 
Also provide and multiply your seed and increase your harvest of righteousness. Notice what the harvest is. He doesn't say your harvest of a, of a lush bank account, your harvest of, of a newer vehicle, your, your harvest of, of more money for retirement. He doesn't say that. He says your harvest of righteousness. And so in other words, it's, it's, it is the case that God is going to provide everything that is needed in your life and in mine to produce the harvest of righteousness. And then all of a sudden, you look at our brother or sister right now who is in jail because of their faith to Jesus, who right now is without food. God is supplying by His Spirit everything that is needed for the harvest of righteousness. So that like Paul and Silas in a prison cell, they could sing out to the Lord songs of joy at midnight so right now, the testimony after testimony after testimony of our persecuted brothers and sisters is out of an abundance of joy that is in their life because of their union with Jesus Christ and His Spirit. That is a union and a joy that, by and large, I feel like is absent many times in the lives of many believers here in the West. And I think it is because we have bought into this idea that what God promised and is providing for us because many of us will eat three meals today plus snacks. Many of us have a choice of which roof we want to go under, this house or do we want to go to that house or those things. We look at those things and yet sometimes it can leave us without joy. Well, this is all from God and, you know, but I, I feel a lack of joy and emptiness still sometimes. If we disconnect the reality that God blesses in order for us to be a blessing, the idea of the harvest, and we just continue to accumulate and accumulate and build bigger barns in order to store all of our things, all of these, these metaphors that Jesus himself provided to warn us and to lead us into righteousness, then the increase is in material possessions that will all waste away, not an increase of righteousness. But as Paul is communicating here, he says, Now the one who provides seed for the sower, that is God, and bread for food, that is God, will also provide and multiply your seed, which he doesn't define, and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And so we need to be careful here that we don't fall into the prevalent trap that Paul warns against of the love of money. We just need to acknowledge that right here as, as brothers and sisters who live in the most affluent nation in the world, who have resources that abound, that we are going to be tempted to be lovers of money. We just need to be honest with one another about that. I'm going to struggle against that, and I believe that you are going to struggle against that, that that is going to be a constant thing that we are battling against in this life because it's so prevalent, because it's, it's, it's accessible is that we will be tempted to love money rather than love God. And so this warning, this warning of the, the sowing, the warning of, the, of, the, of experiencing the, the generous harvest, and then this passage of remembering that he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, is an invitation to us to participate just as we see in Christ. This is quoting back to Psalm 112, 
And we see it as a messianic psalm that describes Jesus so beautifully. And I invite you to take time today to go and read Psalm 112 just to see a portrait of your Savior. But this part, he captures and he says, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor. And so if Christ is to be formed in us, that will be part of our Christ-likeness is giving to the poor, of caring for those in need. And that in that is part of the righteousness that God intends for us. His righteousness endures forever. So let us be warned that practicing generosity does not mean you will always get what you want, even though you thought you needed it. You see, we need a reminder of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and what they said to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3. They said, if the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. He can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know, king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. We need to be believers today who say, God can meet every physical need, financial need that I have. He is able. That's what verse 8 says. But even if he does not, we need believers who say, but even if he does not, we will not bow down to the love of money and run after some other God. We, we will not give up in trusting in the one who saved us and gave us the greatest gift that can be given. We have a treasure stored up in heaven that cannot be stolen, cannot rust and be eaten by moths. That's where our treasure is. That's where our king is. And so we need to be believers who like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who can say he can, he is able, but even if he does not, we will not relent in our faith to him. Number four, practicing generosity results in praise and glory to God. This is probably the best part of this entire passage that he wants them to, to grasp. Beginning in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way for all generosity. I mean, he's telling you, he's saying, if you will be generous, if you will participate in this generous life, you will be enriched. It's going to benefit you and not just by putting more money in your pocket, but there is going to be an enrichment that comes because of your union with Christ. That's why he quotes Psalm 112. He says, this is how Jesus, this is the way of Jesus, is giving himself away for the benefit of others, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. He says, people are going to worship the Lord because of the generosity that is welling up from you. For the ministry of this service, again, the ministry of the service to the saints in Jerusalem and the difficulty that they're going through, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. In other words, it's not just that they're just saying, Lord, thank you, but that then there are believers there who say, Lord, you have done this for me. You, you have saved me. You have captivated me. And I want to now do something in the same way that you have blessed me. I want to be a blessing to someone else. So it's not just Thanksgiving, but now their lives are overflowing in an abundance, meeting needs of others, caring for the poor in their own community. Because of the proof provided, verse 13, by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone. Practicing generosity results in praise and glory to God. You see, here's how it works. When someone sows generously, 
especially if that person does not have much. When you look at them from the outside and you say, they don't really seem to be a person who would be able to be generous. Remember, we talked about that. Generosity is not a financial position. That's what the world wants us to believe. You got to have a lot of money to be generous. That's not how God defines it. Instead, when they look at someone who sows generously, who gives generously, it invites the question, where do they get their seed? Who's providing for them? Where do they work? What's their job? Did they inherit wealth? I mean, these are the ways that we think. When we see somebody that has wealth, we're like, well, now how does that work? But what it should result in is people saying, where do they get it from? And then the confession, it comes from the Lord. The Lord is my provider. Freely I receive, freely I give. I hold it all with an open hand. This becomes increasingly curious when a person who is seemingly has nothing gives all that they have. I mean, just remember the example that Jesus held up of a widow who gave two small coins in worship, who then he stopped everything, got the attention of his disciples, and he says, do you see her? She just gave more than everyone. And the disciples are like, uh, I, I, don't, I don't think so, Jesus. Like maybe, you know, maybe you thought it was the person before her, you know, like, I, don't, I don't know what you're thinking, but people put in a lot more than her, a lot more. And he says, she put in everything she had to live on. Jesus knew that her faith was in God. God was her provider. That's why she could put it all given to him. Didn't matter to her. She was worshiping God. How the priests spent it. Many of the priests were, were not trustworthy. She was trusting in God. Practicing generosity results in praise and glory to God. And then fifth, practicing generosity reveals the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to go down with me to verse 15. It says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Indescribable. This is the only time that Paul uses this word in the New Testament. It's the only time that's found in the Bible. Indescribable. And what he's not saying is you can't describe it. Like you, you literally can't use words to describe it. Instead, what he's communicating is it goes beyond the ability of words alone to describe. That this gift that God has given, the only way to describe it is to not only use words, but to use your life. It has to have a, a physical aspect to the description in order to really start to get your hands more around it. In other words, what he's saying is, this is not just an art articulated gift. It's not just something that you're supposed to go and tell. Allison and I were having a conversation yesterday about that, about the importance of not only articulating the gospel, but of demonstrating the gospel. And is that some social liberation gospel movement, you know, away from the gospel? Some would suggest that it is, but Paul says it is not. Paul right here defines very clearly that thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. In other words, God didn't just voice from heaven, I love you. I love you so much I would send my one and only son. I love you so much that I would raise him from the dead for you. He didn't just say it. He sent him. 
He sent him and he came and lived among us. He took on flesh and blood and walked with us. He ate our food. He smelled the smells. He went into the places that were the places you wanted to avoid. He touched the people you, you made every effort to avoid touching. He spent time with people that everyone else spent time avoiding or taking time to, to make a plan to avoid. This indescribable gift was not only an articulated message, it was something that was transacted in person, in the person of Jesus. And that's exactly what he calls us to do. He says, he says in verse 13, and because of the proof provided by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedient confession of the gospel of Christ. In other words, he says, it is a confession. Jesus is Lord. You got the confession right. Now demonstrate it. Prove it. Prove it because that's what God did. God didn't just say it. He didn't just prophesy about it in the Old Testament that these are the things he would do. He did it. And so if they are to be impacted by the gospel, if they are to be impacted by the gospel, it's a gospel where you're going to have to come on down and give of yourselves. You're going to have to to pull out your pocketbook and give in order to really start to communicate this indescribable gift. This gift that you can't just describe with words. Brothers and sisters, that's what meets us today. We have got the confession right. Jesus Christ is Lord. That's our confession. That's what binds us together. But Paul says, your confession, Jesus Christ is Lord, is supposed to be described with your life, with your giving, with your service. That then becomes a full proclamation of the gospel. So in places like Lesotho, we go with the gospel. How can they believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear if no one goes to tell them? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so we are going to be those who bring good news, but we are going to do it in the context of meeting urgent physical needs, medical needs, food needs, the meeting the needs of orphans and widows, of coming up with, with ways to think about how to strengthen this people and empower them so that 20 years from now, 40 years from now, things are different. That we didn't just go into a place like Lesotho to feel good about ourselves. To, to do generosity by the standards of this world, just to throw some money at it and say, well, I feel better. Now, that wasn't the indescribable gift of God. The indescribable gift of God was an articulated message that the prophets spoke and spoke and spoke, but then was a lived message with Jesus Christ himself. That's why generosity is all about lordship. Because if Jesus Christ is Lord, if you've got that confession, then Paul says, prove it. Prove it. And that's the gospel. The gospel is always proven because he who started a good work in you will bring it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He is faithful. He will do it. The Spirit will manifest his fruit in your life. But if you're here today, and the reality for you is you have been trying to be a generous person, 
but you have been trying to do it for God. God, I want to give you something. Lord, I want to be kind to you and help you out. I want you to understand that's not lordship. That's the worldly definition of generosity. Lordship is, Jesus, I give you everything. I give you my, my sinful heart. I give you everything. I don't know why you would want it, but I give you everything. I give you my life, and I need you to take me and to make me whole. I need what only you can give. Is that where you are today? Have you been going through the motions of generosity without knowing the indescribable gift of God and Jesus? Then I invite you to come and to receive the gift today. Maybe just at your seat to just get on your knees before the God of all creation and say, Jesus, I need you. I need the gift. But for others of you, this may be a check where your confession's been right, Jesus Christ is Lord, but you needed to hear those words of Paul, prove it, prove it. I invite you all to stand in this moment. We're going to worship in song based on what we've just heard, asking God to, to build in our lives a life that reveals the fullness of the gospel, not just the confession, but the life of the gospel. But if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to leave your seat and to come and spend time. Let us pray together.